Romans 5, 12 to 21. We continue our study of original sin. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We find here in this passage a comparison. Our focus is verses 15 to 21. We find here a comparison, a drastic comparison, a stark and very distinct comparison between Adam and Christ. Adam, the first human, the first man created by God in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the first man, Adam, and all of his descendants, all of his offspring, which includes you and me and every person that has ever lived. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. But even Eve came from Adam, from Adam's side. So everyone is in one way or another a relative of Adam. Adam is our great, great to the (coughs) infinite degree, our grandfather. That's who Adam is. We are all from him, no matter where we are, where we live in the world, what language we speak, we all come from him. That is a fact of history. It's a fact in the Bible. In Genesis chapters 1 to 11, various genealogies are presented to show us this very fact. The Apostle Paul in this chapter assumes that fact. He assumes the truthfulness of that fact that we are all descendants of Adam. That's why in this passage he refers to all of Adam's descendants by certain words like all, all men, and many. Words such as these. Look, for example, in verse 15. 
We'll look at 15 and following for these examples of all of us in Adam being called these words. Verse 15, it says, For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died. Who are the many? The many are us, which we saw from 5, 12 to 14. The many are us who died. Look also in verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from, the, from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But the, on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of life will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. There's the word all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The many were made sinners. We saw, therefore, that in 15 and 19, all of us in Adam are called the many. And in verse 18, all of us in Adam are called all men. And all men does not mean all males or all grown-up males. It doesn't mean that. It refers to every single human being, all men, in verse 18. These terms refer to every individual who is a descendant of Adam. And we all are his descendants. Now, why does the apostle use this phrase or these words to describe all of the posterity of Adam? He does so because not only are we from him physically, we are also from Adam spiritually, in that we have death reigning in us. Because Adam sinned in the garden, that's verses 12 to 14. Because Adam sinned, therefore we sinned in him. Because Adam transgressed the commandment of God, we transgressed the commandment of God. This is why he's referring to Adam and all of us. Both physically and spiritually, we all are guilty, we're all sinners, we're all in Adam in that way. Now, in reference to this guilt, note a guilt and um, sin, guilt and death. Verse 15, all of us in Adam, verse 15, it says, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, the many died. Verse 16, he says, on the other hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. We died, we received condemnation. Verse 18 also, he says, there resulted condemnation to all men. Condemnation to all men. And in verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Through the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many, all of us, we were made sinners. 
We didn't just at a certain point in life, at age 5 or 10 or 20, become sinners. We were already sinners before we actually sinned consciously with our own minds and wills at whatever age we first sinned in that way. This is all of us in Adam. All of us, without exception. Then, the comparison is made to Christ. The comparison is to Christ, which comparison is implied in verse 14. It's implicit in 14, which says, Adam is a type of him who was to come. The him who was to come is Christ. Then the names are uh, the names of Christ are mentioned in verses 15 to 21. Christ or Jesus Christ in the following passages. Therefore, the comparison is between Adam and Christ. We already know Christ is our Lord and Savior. Already we have the premise that whatever Christ did is good and beneficial for us. That's without dispute. The dispute often comes with those who mitigate or misunderstand what Adam caused in us. We cannot mitigate or misunderstand what Adam caused in us. We have to understand it correctly. Then if we understand that correctly, we can, following that, understand correctly what Christ accomplished for us, what he accomplished for us. First, the assertions of the things he accomplished for us, and then we'll talk about who benefits from it. In 15, he says in the middle of the verse, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. What do we have? Much more, that is, the grace of God can not only neutralize, but conquer completely whatever the transgression of Adam caused. That's his point. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. That is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the gift of God or the free gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what abounds to the many. Verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. The free gift of eternal life in Christ arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. That's an amazing statement at verse 16, at the end of it, when he says, God's free gift came about after many transgressions had been committed. Which means the many transgressions did not subvert or undermine or contradict the will of God to produce or to bring about salvation for us. 
God has the amazing ability to take that which is evil and bring good out of it. That which is evil and bring good out of it. We know that to be the case with Joseph. Joseph understood this. Joseph, the ruler of Egypt, in, Ex- uh, in Genesis, in Genesis 50, verse 20, 50, 20, he says this to his brothers. Genesis 50, 20. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. The transgressions, the many transgressions of his brothers and even others, God turned those all around and brought good out of it. That also happened with Jesus Christ. It also happened here that after many transgressions, after we committed many transgressions, God was still able to take sin and bring righteousness out of it. He was able to take such a miserable and dark circumstance and turn it around to bring bright light into our soul. That's what he was able to do. That's what he means, many transgressions resulting in justification. That's what Christ accomplished for us. Verse 17, what else did Christ accomplish? For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Notice this qualifier in 17. This qualifier in the middle of this passage is not insignificant. We will refer to it in a few moments. This qualifier, who is it that is going to have this life, this eternal life? It says in 17, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. It takes reception of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. It has to be received. It's not automatic. It must be received. And how is it received? By faith or belief in Christ. That is what he's explained elsewhere. But in this passage, his thrust, his focus is to compare and contrast Adam and Christ. That's his point. We continue verse 18. What else did Christ do? So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. One act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. What is the one act of righteousness that results in justification of life to all men? If we wanted to focus on it, we could focus on Romans 4, Romans 4, 23 to 25. If we're going to talk about one act that is the clincher and the foundation of everything we receive, Romans 4, 23 to 25. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions 
and was raised because of our justification. He was raised because of, or on account of, or for our justification. So he's talking about the death and resurrection of Christ. And specifically, more specifically in verse 25, 425, his resurrection results in our justification. We cannot be justified unless he rose bodily from the dead. Not not a spirit resurrection, there is no such thing, but a bodily resurrection. That's what happened, and therefore we receive life. Further, verse 19, what did Christ accomplish? For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous by the obedience of the one. If he means this obedience is centered on the death and resurrection, we have Romans 4, 23 to 25. Or if he's including all of Christ's obedience, which of course is the case, that from the beginning until the end of his life, he was perfect, 100%, disobeyed, not in a single thing. Whether internal sin or external sin, not a single sin. His obedience is necessary for us to be made righteous. When he fully obeyed, it made us righteous. Then 20 to 21. 20 to 21. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What was the purpose of the written law in the time of Moses? What was the purpose of the written law in the time of Moses? He says, the law came in that the transgression might increase. If he's referring to the law of Moses, what was its purpose? Or let's say he's referring to the law of the moral law written on the human heart that started in Adam. Why did God give that law? So that we would have awareness of our sin, whether from Adam to Moses or Moses till now, we would have awareness of our sin And once we have awareness and we transgress based on our awareness, we're more guilty. We're more guilty when we are made more aware of sin. Sin's nature, sin's um, context or specificity, case in this case or in that case, is it a sin to do this or is it a sin to do that? The more God explains and clarifies to us, the more we are guilty because we often transgress those very things he clarifies to us. So that's what he means in verse 20. The law came in that the transgression might increase. Well, why did God want us to be so sinful? He wanted us to be so sinful so he could be shown to be so gracious, as it says in 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. This is similar to what he says of the abundance of grace in verse 15. 15 and 20, 
He says, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And in verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 21, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sin reigned in death, no doubt now. Actual death, not partial death, but full death. Sin reigned in death. Sin was the king and he brought about death. Sin reigned. But now grace reigns. Sin does not reign. Sin does not dominate. Sin is not our dictator. Now we have a benevolent dictator, grace. We have grace that reigns through righteousness. Grace does not reign through sin. Grace does not reign through transgressions. Grace to the believer now, to the saved, it reigns through righteousness. Grace and righteousness go together. Not grace and sin. It is characteristic of the Christian life for grace and righteousness to be together, to be bound up together, to be intertwined. One brings about the other. Grace does not bring about sin. Grace brings about righteousness in Jesus Christ. And its ultimate consequence to eternal life. Both received as a deposit now and then experienced to the full later when our Lord returns. The deposit or the pledge we have now with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the assurance of salvation now, and then in the future, in the full experience of it, when we see our Lord Christ face to face. And this is all only possible through Jesus Christ our Lord, only through Him. We have a remaining question, a major question that remains. Who benefits, who benefits, who was the target? Who was the goal that God had in mind when Christ accomplished all of this for us? Who was it? Well, we may summarize the major views, the four major views with words like Calvinism, Socinianism, Amaraldism, and Arminianism. Calvinism teaches that he benefited only the elect. He came purposely, definitively, effectually to save the elect who will believe because God's grace will work in them to believe. They were dead, but God's grace works in them to make them alive. So he came to die for them and them alone. Who are, in this passage, called the many and all men? In the very verses, in this very passage, where we read that the many died in Adam, verse 15, it says, the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The many in this passage refer to the many in Christ. Not the same identical group that died in Adam, 
but the limited group called the many who are alive in Christ. That's in verse 15. That's the way Calvinism understands it, and that is the correct view. Calvinism, the correct view. Verse 18 says, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Well, who are the all men in verse 18? The all men in Christ. Not the all men in Adam who have death, but if we have life, we have life in Christ, and this group he calls, those in Christ he calls all men. Because there is a full number, a numerous number, that encompasses people all around the globe throughout history who believe in Christ, Jesus Christ, for salvation. And also, he mentions it in verse 19, the many. The many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That that is, the elect many will be made righteous. That is the correct view of this passage. All men in Adam are dead, but all men in Christ are alive. Everyone in Adam's category will not be shifted or transferred to Christ's category. Those in Adam's group, some of them will be brought into Christ's group. Adam's posterity, Adam's descendants, is universal, meaning every human. But in Christ's posterity, Christ's people, Christ's family, in his family, there is a subgroup of those in Adam's family in this passage called the many and all men. That is the clear distinction the apostle is making. Now, why do we have to make that distinction? Because he, the apostle has already spoken of the fact that there is death and that there are reprobate who will never believe, Romans chapter one, that God gives them over to a depraved mind. He gives them over to a depraved mind, right? And then in Romans chapter 9, the apostle will argue that there have always been two groups or two categories of people. There is the category of the saved, that is Isaac, and then Jacob, and Moses, and all of those who follow in their path who are elect. There's another category, Ishmael, the brother of Isaac, Esau, the brother of Jacob, and then um, Pharaoh in the time of Moses, who opposed Moses, Pharaoh in his nation, who refused to believe, they are in that other category. We might call them the goats. There's the sheep and there are the goats. The sheep and the goats. Always two groups or categories of humanity. That's the same as the apostle is teaching in Romans 5. In Romans 5, he's not talking about election in terms of Romans 9. In those terms, he's not speaking here, but he is clearly saying there is a definitive group that receives the benefits of the work of Christ. And there's two things that absolutely have happened, definitively, effectually happened. We all died in Adam, And in Christ, if we're in Christ, 
we will definitively, effectually be made alive. That's the argument of Romans 5. It takes place that way. Also, the instrument, the instrument of entry into eternal life is faith. The agent is Christ. The instrument is faith. The tool or the instrument is faith and not everybody has faith. If the instrument of obtaining eternal life is faith, look at verse 17. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. There, by referring to this phrase or mentioning this phrase, those who receive the abundance of grace, he's talking about how one receives, which he's already explained. From Romans 1, from Romans 1, 16, and from there through 5, 11, he has been mentioning faith over and over again the necessity of faith. And we know not all have faith. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Not all have faith. It doesn't happen. So Satan will not believe one day and neither will any of his children, spiritual children. None of them will believe. Okay, well, then that brings us to opposing viewpoints. Based on a misunderstanding of this passage and similar passages, there is a man named Socinius, or was a man named Socinius, several centuries ago. His belief is, in modern times, called universalism. Universalism teaches, based on Romans 5, a misunderstanding of Romans 5, they teach that every individual goes to heaven, including demons and the devil. Every individual, no matter how evil he was, including Hitler and Stalin, Nero, whoever else we might think of, they will all go to heaven. Yes, even Barack Hussein Obama, they will all go to heaven, whether they believe in the gospel or not. They don't have to believe, they don't even have to know of the gospel. It doesn't matter. They could oppose the gospel until their last breath. It doesn't matter. They will eventually go to heaven. They will all go to heaven. Whether in Christianity or outside of Christianity, whether you know about Christ or don't know about Christ, everyone and every evil spirit, every human and every evil spirit goes to heaven. That's known as universalism. Today's universalists will not openly admit because it's embarrassing will not openly admit that the devil and other wicked spirits and and people will go to heaven. But if you press a universalist on the matter, he will say yes. He will say yes, and he'll say it based on a misunderstanding of Romans 5. He says, well, all men in Christ, all men are going to be in Christ. They equate the Adam group with the Christ group, and that's not possible. Then another view is known as Amaraldism, Amaraldism or Amaraldianism. This man, he lived also in the medieval period, late medieval period, in the time after the Reformation. And he believed that God does elect or choose people to be saved and they will be the ones saved. However, Jesus did literally die for every person 
even though every person will not go to heaven. He did die for every person, but every person will not go to heaven. That's Amaraldianism. And the problem with that view, even though he takes it based on this passage, the problem is it makes God to be one who's unsuccessful or a miserable failure from the very beginning. And the blood of Christ was spilled unnecessarily for people who will never be recipients of the benefits of the blood of Christ, which is also something that is offensive in Scripture. God does whatever He pleases. Um, Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 135, verse 6. He does whatever He pleases, and He is not shortchanged. God is never gypped, or God is never... um, wasting his words or wasting his world or wasting the blood of Christ. The Bible doesn't portray God like that at all. Therefore, amaraldism cannot fit with the truths of Scripture or this passage. And then lastly, the most popular view today is known as Arminianism. Arminianism teaches that Jesus died for every individual, every single person throughout history, And therefore, since he died for the benefit of every single person, it is possible for every single person to go to heaven. They have to believe, many say. Some of them don't even say that. But many say they have to believe, but they will go to heaven. Since he died for every person. Since he died for every person. So popular Evangelists who believe like this would be in the 1800s, Charles Finney. Charles Finney in the 1800s. D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody in the 1800s believed like this. In the 1900s, and even in the first couple of decades of the 2000s, Billy Graham. Billy Graham believed like this. And even... Currently, many modern Calvinists believe like this. They don't say it, but if you press them on the matter, you'll see what they're saying about the death of Christ. Many modern Calvinists, new Calvinists or neo-Calvinists, they believe like this, or they think it's a valid belief. They either believe like this, or they think, take it or leave it, It doesn't really matter. We're all going to go to heaven, even if you believe in the Arminian way. So the Arminian way makes God's grace universal and it's dependent on the human will to act on the grace given to believe. That's what Arminianism does. Since Jesus died for every person and God gives his grace to every person, Therefore, it's just up to the free will of the individual to exert his strength or his will to believe and benefit from the death of Christ. Now, that's if you hear it to believe it. But they also believe, like Billy Graham believed, that you don't have to know of Christ to believe in Christ and go to heaven. 
Since Jesus died for every person, even the Hindus and the Muslims and the Buddhists who never believe, and even the atheists in communist countries who never believe, they never hear of the name of Christ, they never know why he died, even if they never believe because they never know, since Jesus died for every person, as long as they are faithful in whatever they know, in their own religion, they go to heaven. Because Jesus died for every person. That's what they say, like Billy Graham. That view is known as inclusivism. Inclusivism. Everyone has a chance to get to heaven. Because it depends on man's will, not God's will. Not God's will of election. But man's will, where man chooses, man elects, not God. Those are the main views But we have seen that what is dubbed as Calvinism is the correct interpretation of Romans 5. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.